morning we're going to be looking at the 22nd Psalm, uh, the first 21 verses of Psalm 22. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Psalm 22, a Psalm of King David. Hear these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given some ten centuries before Jesus came. But I believe you'll see the connection to the gospel as we read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Let's pray. Our Father, we would seek your Holy Spirit to be the one giving us the utmost aid and understanding the sacred scripture presented to us here in David's psalm. We know this speaks of our Savior. We know this speaks of Jesus. Help us to see fully what this passage means, what it means for us as believers, what it means also for those who don't know you. In Christ's name, amen. Although today is Palm Sunday, this message is clearly going to be a Good Friday message. To think about the gospel 
is to think about Good Friday 2,000 years ago. It's to think about the cross as the well-known instrument during that era in the Greco-Roman Empire of capital punishment. And what irony it is that this instrument of death became the symbol of reconciliation and peace with God. And therefore, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to recognize that the cross witnesses to the centrality of what God did in his son in terms of the gospel. It's fascinating. It's even ironic that the cross became the paramount symbol of the Christian faith. The further significance is that there were other options for the early church to adopt. Uh, John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, a noted writer, theologian, pastor, has given seven possibilities for what might have become the symbol of the Christian faith. Uh, The first one he mentions is the manger, which testifies to the fact that God became man in terms of a baby. Uh, the second, he mentions, might be the carpenter's bench because the Son of God actually carried out his father's trade as, as a carpenter. And that could have been a symbol of that intense identification with us. He also mentions a boat because the boat was probably one of the most favored places from which Jesus did his teaching ministry. He mentions also the servant's apron, reflecting on what Jesus put on when he washed his disciples' feet as their servant. Then we could consider the stone, the one that was rolled away to demonstrate there was an empty tomb to testify of the resurrection. Or a throne, because Christ is exalted and sits at the right hand of his Father in heavenly glory. Or perhaps a dove, which symbolizes the descent of the Holy Spirit, not only upon Jesus at his baptism, but also the Holy Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost. So any one of these, Stott says, could have been a symbol, a representative symbol, even a central symbol of what God has done in Christ. But in fact, we have the cross. For even though it was a symbol of of shame and criminality within the Greco-Roman world, it was the preferred instrument of execution of the Roman Empire. If you lived in the Roman Empire in the days of Christ and the apostles, you would have witnessed perhaps hundreds of these as they were posted along main roadsides where the Romans inflicted this cruel kind of death upon those citizens they reckoned to be criminals. Yet, God used it as the manner in which his own son would die for the salvation of the world. And so that we, we know that without the cross, there is no Christianity and that is why our good, our thinking about Good Friday has to take us to the cross. And certainly this text itself, Psalm 22, is a Good Friday passage. Because this psalm takes us right to that day and that occasion in which the Lord God, the Father of glory, was pleased to bruise his own son, to lay upon him Jesus the iniquity of us all. Now, let's think about this for a moment. The psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus came. Uh, therefore, what it says is clearly prophetic in nature. Taken as a whole, 
uh, taken the other 10 verses, which we did not read, this psalm encompasses everything that happened on that holy weekend from Good Friday until Easter morn. It really presents the entire trajectory of the end of the Passion Week and that it first presents in verses 1 through 20, 21 the, the, the gloom of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And then Easter morning, the rest of the verses, the glory of the resurrection. The psalm then speaks of those two great representative things that we find central to the Christian faith. The cross of the Lord Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. So this morning we're going to consider the first part. Next Sunday we'll consider what speaks to the resurrection of Christ. Now a couple of helpful hints concerning this psalm. Um, As I've already mentioned, this psalm describes something written by David, a thousand years before, before Jesus came. And yet it is a vivid description of something which the Jewish population had never themselves witnessed before. But it is the nature of prophecy to declare in advance those things that God is going to do. And secondly, we ought to recognize that this psalm was itself upon the lips of Jesus when he was being crucified. And if for no other reason we would recognize, as the Apostle Paul recognized and the other apostles and New Testament writers recognized, Jesus quoting this psalm was to signal to them that which he was experiencing was also in fulfillment of Scripture. But it takes us to the key words of this entire psalm that we will consider this morning what we find in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only do we find fulfillment of Scripture in these words, but also what this passage reflects is the fact that when Jesus was forsaken by the Father, in his dying and in his death, this is what Jesus did for us This is what Jesus did in our place. But also the picture of Jesus' suffering becomes also a kind of index of our sinfulness at the same time that it becomes a measure of God's love and grace. And those are the things I want us to consider this morning. The fulfillment of Scripture. The fact that Jesus died for us and in our place. And the truth that that what we see happening to Jesus on the cross is clearly an index of our sinfulness as well as a measure of the Father's great love. The main point being that this, that we as Christians, no less than the Christians in the New Testament era and no less than the Apostle Paul, must be determined to know nothing among the people of this world than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So in the first place, Psalm 22 tells us this, that it was in fulfillment of prophetic scripture that Jesus suffered and died. Now, some have thought that because we find the first part of this psalm upon the lips of Jesus, what he spoke aloud, that perhaps Jesus was reciting this entire psalm while he was upon the cross. It's hard to picture him not doing so. It's hard to picture him not having the very words of the living God that he himself is experiencing 
also going through his mind. So whether it was aloud or whether it was uttered within his heart, we have to know that Jesus was himself identifying at this particular time during his crucifixion with what we find going on here within this psalm. The first thing of this psalm is one of the cries that we hear Jesus saying in terms of his famous seven last sayings upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus fulfilling scripture in terms of what he was experiencing. Now, we can look at several points of correspondence between what we find in Psalm 22 and in the crucifixion experience of Jesus to see that this is so. And and most of these correspondences we find in the book of Matthew, but we find them also in Mark, we find them in Luke, we find them in John. So, well, for instance, the, the whole psalm itself, which speaks of all this suffering, think about what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. He says that the Old Testament prophets were, the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Well, the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ in, in, in David himself, was testifying to the sufferings of Jesus and the subsequent glories. But then particularly verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These, these very words which Jesus uttered upon the cross, we, we read about the fulfillment in Matthew 27. In fact, several of these show up in Matthew 27. In verse 46 we read, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we can also look at verse 2 of Psalm 22. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And we can see here in this day and night reference a reflection of how On the day of crucifixion, that day was turned to utter darkness for about three hours. Matthew records this. He says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. In verses 6 through 8, we read about the reproaches of the people who were surrounding Jesus at the cross. Jesus says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then Matthew 27, beginning at verse 39, we read this. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. 
For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Or consider verses 11 through 13. There we find a prediction that in his suffering there would be no one to help. And so the psalmist cries out, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, a ravening and roaring lion. And that reality is also reflected in what Matthew records. In chapter 26, verse 56, as the arresting party comes and takes Jesus by force, we read that all the disciples fled. In fact, later Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. The only disciple that we actually find there at the scene of the crucifixion at the foot of the cross is the Apostle John. And of course, John is impotent to help Jesus at that stage in any way whatsoever. There's a fulfillment that in the day of his greatest need, there was none to help Jesus. We also see key elements of the, of the crucifixion described for us. Verses 16 and 17. The piercing of Jesus' hands and his feet. We read, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And then other aspects of the crucifixion. The extreme dehydration. The hypertension, the hyperextension of the arms. The extreme distress of the heart. These things are all noted. Verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And we also know what John says in John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, all was now fulfilled, said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And then further in verse 17, the last half, the people watching Jesus suffer, quoting the psalm again, they stare and gloat over me. And Luke accurately records this, Luke 23, verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, both watching and gloating over Jesus. And then a last point of correspondence verse 18 in the psalm we read they divide my garments among them and my clothing for my clothing they cast lots and matthew records this in chapter 27 verse 35 and when they had crucified him they divided his garments among them by casting lots in john 19:24 and so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now, all of these things had to happen. They had to happen this way because the scriptures had foretold that Jesus would die in this manner. The irony is, Jesus did not deserve any of the things which he suffered. And for that reason, the New Testament tells us frequently that Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died in our place. And this means that what the psalmist describes here, every aspect of the suffering of Christ 
every aspect of the cruelties and torments that he endured were done not for him, but for us. That what took place there in terms of the suffering of the Christ as he hung there was essentially this. The forsakenness Christ experienced was to be the path of our acceptance. His dereliction that he experienced upon the cross, the means of our salvation. His suffering was to bring our healing. So what's before us then when we, when we think about the cry that Jesus makes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, is to look at the reality of what was this forsakenness that Jesus experienced. What was happening to Jesus and why did it have to happen to him? The, the answers which the New Testament present to us are, are given really at, 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 at two levels. One of them we can call personal and the other we can call penal. With respect to the first, the New Testament would tell us that Jesus experiences being forsaken at the personal level, the level of his personal relationship with God his Father. This is to see the cry of dereliction and forsakenness as signaling a kind of spiritual separation between the Father and the Son. Uh, Note how very strange it is for Jesus to be forsaken. Remember what the Gospels tell us about the Father's relationship to His Son. Twice from heaven, the Father speaks these words. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus Himself describes His own relationship with the Father in John 8, 29 when He says, I always do the things which are pleasing to Him. Words no one can ever utter Words that no one from the time that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, no other humans have ever been able to utter those words. Except in some kind of vain conceit that I always do what is pleasing to my Heavenly Father. So at the level of the humanity of Jesus with respect to His incarnation, we are given this direct testimony from both the Father and the Son that a complete harmony, a complete unity existed in their relationship within the context of Jesus' earthly life. The Son was always pleasing to the Father, always doing His Father's will, pleasing Him in every respect, and the Father always being well pleased with His Son, such that we can say without question, the Father and the Son had a relationship that was utterly unbroken by sin or by evil. A relationship completely untouched by the sinful and evil miseries of this life. A relationship that was truly impeccable. A relationship in which there was no flaw, no stain, no blemish at all between the Son of God and His earthly incarnation and His heavenly Father. A reality that none of us has ever, ever experienced. 
but it was the normal, all through his life, experience of the Son of God with his Heavenly Father. Not in your moments of deepest experience of feeling the lavish grace of God and the forgiveness from your Father, never has your heart ever come close to feeling and experiencing what was the constant norm in the life of our Savior. Yet, it is that fellowship, that communion of relationship, which was deeply interrupted, even broken, as Jesus suffered upon the cross. What Christ experienced was forsakenness. What he experienced was being forsaken by God. And so we can say that he experienced what it was like for human beings to be found guilty before God. What it means for human beings to be cast off as guilty sinners. What it means for human beings to feel the deepest sort of despair and alienation from God because we are sinful and he is holy. Jesus felt the emotional reality and guiltiness of alienation from God. The eternal fellowship disrupted as the Son becomes the sin bearer. This disruption was inevitable because the prophet Habakkuk had said so long before, Concerning God, you are of purer eyes than to look upon evil and cannot look at wrong. In some manner then, beyond our comprehension, the Father turned his back upon his Son. The Son was forsaken. But he was forsaken for us. The second level in which Jesus experienced this forsakenness was what we call the penal level. The word penal means punishment. It means penalty. Jesus was forsaken as punishment in our place, as bearing the penalty that we deserved, as suffering a death that was the satisfaction for our sin. And at that level of what Jesus experienced, there's two very significant New Testament ideas. First, Jesus was forsaken by the Father because Jesus was cursed by the Father. Now, the background for that understanding of what was going on at the cross is found in the the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy. In chapter 21, beginning in verse 22, The law of Moses reads this way, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And therefore Paul refers to that same passage in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 13, in describing the meaning of the death of Christ, he says that Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in the law, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When, when Jesus made his cry of dereliction, when Jesus cried that he was forsaken of God, it was because God the Father was placing upon Jesus the curse that rightly belonged upon us. Christ was forsaken because Christ was cursed in our place. What we deserved, the Father laid upon him. Secondly, Jesus was forsaken by the Father because he suffered the full fury of the Father's wrath against sin. The Apostle Paul begins his description of the gospel of grace in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The place where that holy wrath of God is revealed from heaven more clearly than any other place in all of the universe, in all of time and space, is right there at the cross where the Son dies the penalty of the ultimate wrath of a holy God. And yet Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that in all of this, the Father was putting forth His Son as a propitiation in His blood. And remember, remember that this term, propitiation, is a word that means not only a sacrifice that expiates the guilt of sin, but it is a sacrifice that goes further than that, which fully pacifies, fully extinguishes, fully removes the wrath of God. And this is how Jesus was forsaken in our place. He came under the curse of God in order to bear the wrath of God in our place, that we might be saved. The Irish hymn writer Thomas Kelly, back in 1804, gave us words to describe the suffering of Jesus upon the cross. It's hymn number 257, and it goes this way. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning. Foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The deepest stroke that pierced the Lord Jesus in all of his sufferings 
came from the hand of justice, even from his father's own hand. The father, cursing his son, forsaking his son, pouring his wrath upon his son in our place for our sin, that we might be saved. And finally, we would learn from this psalm that all this picture we see of the suffering of Christ is a clear index of our sinfulness. But it is also the ultimate measure of God's love and grace. Consider the heinousness of sin and the greatness of grace that we find reflected here. The heinousness is, is the awfulness the criminality of our sin against God is pictured in the cruelty of the sufferings and punishment and shame that Jesus had to experience in our place. We know that the Gospels themselves never dwell upon the description of the terrible and torturing nature of death by crucifixion. In the Greco-Roman world, there was never any need to do so because the, the Romans regularly practiced this. It was a common understanding how incredibly tormenting, how incredibly shameful death by crucifixion happened to be. So the description of what crucifixion is like is left to the prophetic words that we find here and in a few other places in the Old Testament. And so again, verses 14 and 15, we read, and this is Jesus, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue stick to my jaws. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. Modern medical science has given us actually a detailed understanding of how each of these statements depict the terrible sufferings that Jesus experienced in dying this way. It was a suffering, it was a pain unimaginable to most of us. Yet this was the price which Jesus had to pay in order to secure our salvation. Thomas Kelly says it this way, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. And so we can say, this picture of the suffering of Jesus is the index of our great sinfulness. What great sin that Jesus had to suffer so much. But also this picture of his suffering is the ultimate measure of God's love and grace toward us. That the Father would put his Son to this suffering in order to make us sons as well. We see this emphasized in the New Testament scriptures in a number of places. In Romans 5.8 we read, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
or Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Or in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Knowing the price paid, the death of his own son, knowing the cost that Jesus paid in suffering, punishment, and shame unimaginable, we are left with one direction only for our thinking that God has loved us beyond all comprehension and lavished his saving grace upon us beyond all measure. And once again, we can say with Thomas Kelly, here we have a firm foundation. Here, the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope has built. So in this message, the message of the cross, we find the God of the gospel calling for a response from believer and non-believer alike. To those who believe, there is a call here to praise God for His grace and to praise God for His love and to thank God for His Son and to live no longer for themselves but for Him who died for them and rose again. And to those who are non-believers, there is a call from God to see in Jesus a true redemption through his blood, the offer of forgiveness of all sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he will lavish upon those who will believe. For whosoever believeth on him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Father, our Lord and our God, there is no psalm in all of Scripture more sober and sobering than what we have looked at this morning. And yet it is in this sober look at the suffering of Jesus that we see the lavishness of your grace, the full measure of your love, that you were willing to give your utmost for our highest good, that we would become sons and daughters of the living God. And so we give you praise. And so we thank you for the cross of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For from there, what a great fountain of blood. 
drawn from his veins that we as sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all our guilty stain. For that we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.